one of my philosophies is is, is um, communication is the the be all and end all of a really good relationship of a coach being able to work with an athlete. I think there's a, a mantra or there's a quote that I always think is that the athlete doesn't doesn't care what you know until they know you care, and that's something that I really believe in, and that's probably my approach in the way that I coach. That's Tony Sefton, head strength and conditioning coach at the University of Melbourne and this week's guest on the Movement Podcast. Thanks, Tony, for joining us today. And um, just to do a brief introduction, so we've got Tony Sefton, head strength and conditioning coach of the Melbourne University uh, Elite Athlete Program. That's right, And yeah. is it more broadly across the... Um, general sports program at Melbourne University? Yeah, so the Elite Athlete Program, we do have sl- slightly different levels for it, but what we're where it's actually started to where it's progressing to, it's hopefully going to be, in the next few years, be more tailored towards the elite side. But at the moment, we have uh, a range of different levels, whether they be a member or they actually access support services. But we're, I have about 125 athletes that can access me for programming, so across about 34 different sports. That's pretty full on. I imagine your week's pretty full on in terms of juggling different athletes, different sports. It's interesting um, and it's taxing at the same time. So obviously a lot of the time you're wanting to do your periodization and you're trying to get the plan where it flows on and and maximising. But the actual workload is so large that I've had to streamline a lot of my approaches along the way. It's probably in uh, about 18 years of working as an S&C coach, it's the busiest job I've ever had. Um, some ways it could be the most challenging, but in some ways it's the most enjoyable as well. Well, and I mean, let's delve back into the 18 years because yeah. I mean, it's interesting you say this is the busiest part because you've done some interesting things. But one of the things to go right back to the start, um, your interest in sport as a coach, yeah. you know, did you start it as an athlete? Um, cool. I'd like to claim I was a well, fa- I was a fa- was I was a failed athlete. I mean, to be honest, I think I was a jack of all trades, master of none. So I yeah. played um, back because I'm obviously from England. So we had like our county setup, which is similar to the state level. And I played five different sports at yeah. that level, um, but wasn't really good enough for any of them to really go in. So my passion for sport has always been there. That's where I studied. I ended up doing my sports science degree. And then from that, I um, went into the personal training world. And uh, so I've pretty much been working in health and fitness or sport all of my life and haven't really looked to do anything different. Yeah, so so it was all, always going to be sort of the direction of where you wanted to take things. In yeah, terms of I got caught up in the PT world for too long, I would yep. say. Um, I was just really enjoying myself working in central London, working with... Um, very number of clients in different spaces and stuff but I always had this dream of working with athletes but just got lost along the way a little bit and then um, I had an opportunity to work in Saudi Arabia so I worked for a client out there so I did that for two years and when I came back from that experience I had some money that enabled me to then go what did I really want to do and that's when I decided that I wanted to chase his career in strength conditioning. And I mean, it's funny with the personal training, like you can sort of get pigeonholed a little bit in personal training, but yeah. I suppose the, the interesting thing is you get to work with a lot of different athletes or people who are just trying to get fit or sort of, and that sort of probably forms a pretty broad base of how you go about, you know, your approach. I think it teaches you how to communicate because some of the people that you're working with are yeah. very influential people. They might be CEOs or stuff like that. The very next one, you might have someone that just wants a... a weekend warrior program you might have someone who's going for a marathon or a challenge and stuff and they can be hours next to each other so your diversity in your skill set to be able to communicate with different populations is where you really I think learn a lot of the skills that are very relevant for a strength conditioning coach because I think one of my philosophies is is is, um, communication is the the be all and end all of a really good relationship of a coach being able to work with an athlete I think there's a, a mantra or there's a quote that I always think is that the athlete doesn't doesn't care what you know until they know you care. And that's something that I really believe in and that's probably my approach in the way that I coach. Has that always been your approach? No. I um I think in the early days, because you're you get into it, you're excited, you you've done your research and stuff and you just want to trial everything out. I tended to be a lot more, I'll write the program for you, I know what you need. This is what it's done. This is what the research says. Whereas now my approach is a lot more collaborative. I prefer to 
find out what the athlete wants and what they need and then trying to meet that up. And if there's uh, knowledge gaps, we can then educate on that one. But pretty much athletes, when you move into that higher F, uh, higher levels, have sort of worked out what it is they need. They've got a really good feel for it. And if they haven't, my job in the early stages as a coach is to ask them and pose some questions that they start investigating to find out what it is that they need or where their strengths are or you know, just understanding their recovery models. Yeah. Um, so when you came back from Saudi Arabia and you decided this was the area that you wanted to really yeah. sort of, you know, get into and, and probably sort of in the elite stream, yeah. I imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah What definitely. was the first? So was the job with the golf, um, English golf? Yeah, so I was... Was that the first? I was working as a head of performance at Hertfordshire um, University, which um, gave me an opportunity to... Um, really specialise in that area. I was doing a lot of voluntary work before that. I applied for an awful lot of jobs um, and got no success in terms of applications. And then through the, um, we had a talented athlete program at Hertfordshire University. And in the area of Hertfordshire is the, uh, is where Nick Faldo's from, funny enough. And at the same golf course was a very talented young 15 year old golfer. And his father approached me as part of our program and we gave him a scholarship and I started training him in a, you know, like three times a week and helping him with his physicality. And he just basically developed really well as a, as a golfer in that time. I then got approached by England Golf to come up to one of their training camps. And then after that, they invited me in to then take over the strength conditioning program for England Golf because they had no one in place at that time. And uh, yeah, I did that for seven, seven or eight years of just working with lots of golfers that when I look back now, a lot of these are now performing at the highest level, like Tommy Fleetwood, Tom Lewis, uh, Matt Fitzpatrick, all of these guys are well within the top 50 in the world. So it's very exciting for me as a coach to say, look, my involvement was support. You're never the finisher. You're never the main reason to why they achieve. But there was time I spent with them at times. That you just go, yeah, we put them on the right path and gave them. So hopefully I gave them some good information in that as part of their journey. And, and I imagine sort of back then in golf, as you're saying, you know, there probably wasn't a very big focus on S&C and sort of, no. you know, off the course, what sort of, you know, yeah. the golfers were doing in terms of their preparation. So. so so when I first got to the England golf back in, what, 2007 or 2008, um, it was very physio-led. So there, the whole mantra was that the body had to be ready to perform. And if you weren't ready, if you had... Um, tightnesses through your lower back and stuff so a lot of them were just doing like rehab exercises but you know we were able then over the next couple of years to sort of move that on from being a physio-led program to more about based around strength because the human body doesn't understand perfection it's like you may find that you're you're you've got some tightness in certain areas or you might be weak in your legs but you've got a really good strong upper body that means you can't wait until the body has got no ailments or nothing before you can start training because that's just not how we work. We don't work off a basis of perfection. You can make gains, even if someone's injured, they can still get stronger in other parts of the body. And there's a lot of research that says even when you injure a leg, it's well worth training the other leg because the neurological stimulation can help strength building in the, the weaker leg after post of an injury. So you talk about education. So you did a formal... Yeah, so uh, I did I did my UKSCA, so yep. it's a strength conditioning qualification. I already had my sports science, yep. but... The, uh, back in 2008, because I also was working for the English Institute of Sport as well. Yeah. So that was in a, a part-time role as part of my university role. Um, in 2008, every coach that was in the Olympic setup or with the EIS had to get their UK SCA qualification so that they could then standardise that everybody had the same strength conditioning coach uh, qualification. Not to be controversial, but yeah. the um, education side of what you've done and yeah. then the experience side of what you've done. Yes, like, where does it balance it in terms of, you know, and so be brut brutally honest. If I was going to be brutally honest, it's sort of like you need the um, fundamentals to be able to learn are really important. So yep. you need to be able to take a piece of text and be able to read it, decipher it, and then be able to articulate it. But it's about experience. It's about getting in the trenches. It's about being around world-class coaches. And and when does someone become world-class? It's, it's a really hard one to say, but basically your reputation will be based on the athletes that you work with or the articles you produce and stuff. So there are a number of coaches that are out there that could be in that world-class level. There's a lot of very talented coaches that aren't world-class yet, but are following the same pathway. So they're really good young. So Lockie Wilmot is a, is a coach here in Australia that's 
Um, done some really great stuff with uh, GWS and AFL. He was recently at uh, Parramatta Reels, and I think he's now setting up his own venture. But he produces good material, is a great presenter and stuff. So catching him on the way up as well, you could almost say that, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting one about when they become world-class. But I would say to any coach who is on their journey, get the qualifications. That gets you the accountability within the profession. But then you've got to get mentored by someone. You've got to be around someone that can just show you some of the tricks and trades. And, and sometimes you'll see it and you go, it's, that's not for me. That's not the coach that I want to be. But you need to see it to be able to help you make those decisions along the way. Yeah, I reckon that's it's almost one of the key things is that um, good coaches are obviously great to learn from. So are bad coaches. You know, I mean, like it's, you know, I've sort of, as an athlete, experienced great coaches, good coaches, average coaches, bad coaches. And now when I reflect back on um, what I've learned, I've learned a lot about the bad coaching methodology and sort of, you know, what I'd avoid doing and what didn't work and then that refines, you know, your sort of approach to things. But I think I think that's a, it's a lovely mantra. But again, I also put in there that who's a bad coach for one person might be the right coach for someone else. Completely. And I've, yeah. I've, I had a, a really good experience with a sports psychologist working with golfers in England. And I was once working with one of the guys, I'm not going to use his name, but he basically challenged me quite a lot of like, yeah, you are the S&C coach for England golf, but why do I need to use you? And he was like, oh, that's like a really tough question for someone who'd like been in the role for six months or so. And he basically said, look, I hit the ball further than anyone else at this age level. I don't really need any more strength. You know, there's nothing you can really offer me. And, and to be honest, right early on, I didn't have any, I couldn't knock him back on anything. Like Three years later, the same guy approached me to then be able to train him. And one of the things that the sports psychologist said is that as long as you're true with your information, sometimes the information's right. It's just at the wrong time for the individual. And I think that's another thing that you just sort of go, as long as you're clear what you're offering is the best to what your knowledge is right now. It may be wrong in 10 years' time, but where you're at that time, that was the right information that you're doing. And sometimes you just have to accept that some athletes are ready to receive that information, some of them aren't. And just don't get blown off your own course just because one guy says, there's nothing you can offer me at that yeah. stage. And, and that was a really good lesson to go through. Yeah. And, it, I mean, it is because it's a relationship between a coach and an athlete and – there's personalities that just, you know, sometimes I'll never actually sort of meet in the middle in terms of working together and others you just click. And so um, yeah. I imagine that's the psychology and the ability to tap into how to use your expertise and then sort of how to work with that athlete is probably one of the experienced parts of you just need to be working with a lot of different athletes to understand. I think that's probably one of the strengths of my bow is that I've done a lot of sports, I've done a lot of age groups, I've had opportunity to work with Olympians I've had an opportunity to work with developing I mean back in my old job in in the UK I was working for a university that had a talent program that I could be training a nine-year-old tennis player and then training someone that's going to the Commonwealth Games in two weeks time afterwards and there'd be hours right back to back with each other and that's that was what kept it really fresh but I think as a coach now if I we were talking earlier about like where have you evolved to I see myself more as um, a coach that does mentoring type approaches I mean everyone can coach a squat and can coach a deadlift and stuff like that but I think what I can add to the program is using my experience to try and help the developing athlete or the athlete that's going into an unusual environment or talking about the psychology side of stuff um, and then just ask them to pose questions and I think that's the bit that I really enjoy that's where I talk about the collaboration bit as well is that feel like I'm a bit more of a mentor in terms of my coaching approach. The So, I mean, I suppose with your English Institute of Sport job, which you ran alongside your golf. Yes, um, yeah. So I, there was basically the business was that we had to generate a budget and the budget was £150,000 that had to be created. So we had associations with different organisations as part of the development of that. And one of them was working with the English Institute of Sport where they would pay for my time to work with their athletes in our in our region, um, so they would buy the time back off the university. Yeah, um, but we work with Arsenal ladies in that that setup as well, and Hertfordshire County Golf and a High Performance Tennis Centre in St Albans and stuff. So, it was a business being run, but it was business of strength conditioning. And I mean, I, I imagine the benefit of being involved in sort of you know that kind of role 
and crossing over. I mean, I've got a list of squash, judo, swimming, disability swimming, women's football, hockey, rowing, badminton, netball, cycling. <laughs> it's <laughs> a long athletics. List. I mean, you know, so that's a huge amount of different sports and different kind of athletes you're dealing with. Yeah. Which I imagine would have kept life pretty interesting in terms of yep. covering off all those bases. But then also just an awesome experience to understand, you know, what the need is for every different sort of sport and athlete and program that you're working across. And yeah, I suppose one of the early things, I met um, a guy called Derek Beaumont. He's a diving coach back in Hertfordshire and um, he's uh, judged at the world class and the Olympic level. And he gave me a very good lesson very early on. He said, look, you're not supposed to be an expert in every sport that you're working with, but you've got to be passionate to find out how to connect with the athletes and you have to get to know their sport. One of the things I was working with um, a couple of athletes and we were talking about just drive, getting more power into the legs to help them with the jump off the board. Well, it's not called a jump off a board. It's called a hurdle step. And it wasn't until I was able to bridge the language of how he coached when I'm talking in the gym with the athletes using the same language, did I get buy-in from the athletes? And then all of a sudden they listened to everything I said. And I went, oh my God, this is so easy. So you have to be fascinated about the sports. You've got to use the right language. You can't use your own language. You can't like, jumping meant nothing to them. But the hurdle step, oh, I know exactly where this exercise now relates to my sporting performance. And I've used that now as my mantra is that if I'm working with any athlete with a new sport, I have to find out the background from it. And one of the things that a lot of coaches coming into the industry go for is that they feel that they need to do all the research. But when the athlete turns up, that person knows all the information that you need. You just got to ask them the questions. And that's part of that uh, collaboration. That's that part of building a relationship because you're paying interest into them. Um, and that would be my biggest tip to any SNC coach working with lots of different sports is talk to your athletes, let them give you the information. Is, um, has the SNC world, so when you first started, has it changed in terms of um, your approach in the industry, but also the industry? Like, you know, is there sort of fundamental changes in terms of how SNC coaches are coaching athletes? And, you know, what, what have you seen? Well, I, this is the second country I've worked as an SNC coach in, and uh, there are some differences between England and Australia, which are quite interesting. And I think that comes with also the athletes that you're dealing with. There's sometimes different mentalities and stuff. Um, if I was talking about personally, what I've gone for is I'm, my philosophy is much more around movement now. Um, consistency is a big thing in my, is a theme of making athletes to stay consistent with their program, consistent with their exercises and consistent with their reps. And I think the amount of variation you get within a set is something that is, needs to be really focused upon. And that's an embracing from the coach, coaching the exercise, but also for the athlete to understand is that you know, heavier doesn't mean better. That's one of the things I have moved away from is that I used to chase the big numbers and you know, it was always think the best athlete was the one with the biggest squat, but it's, it's never been the case. It's those that move well, those that understand how to move well, understanding their own bodies, they recover quicker, they're able to make a bigger transfer. One of the things, and, and we've had this conversation before, talking with Dan Path and stuff, and we recently did that workshop, and it, found, it was very interesting to be in the room when he turned around and said to most of us that, you know, the transferability of the gym to the track is very limited. It's not as big as you may all think it is. And you could see the S&C guys getting very <coughs> defensive, and I'm standing there going, he's totally right. That's exactly where my, sort of where I found is it's, that to get the transfer, the athlete has to move well and that's and then recover fast. So it's more about like moving well and recovering is more about not training. It's the bit that you have to do afterwards that has is really, really important. Yeah. And I mean, I think you know, you and I sort of both enjoyed the time with Dan Paff in terms of just that belief and understanding of all his experience and then sort of packaged up into some some pretty sort of firm positions in terms of how he sort of sees the world and, yeah. and but it's you know, it's almost confronting a little bit in terms of how we've built some of our sports programs because, you know, and this is, you know, probably sort of true of the Australian system is that we're really exceptionally good at building different parts of the sports programs that all are doing a really important part of, you know, uh, their touch points with an athlete. But he probably looks at it and goes, you know, well, how does the whole thing work together? And yes, you might be doing a really important job, but in the scheme of things, it's actually only a small part of, you know, what we need to do with this athlete. And um, 
Is that is that sort of different to what the British programs sort of you know get run, or is it still sort of you know I suppose a little bit fragmented in terms of the the programming? Yeah, I mean I haven't worked there for five years, so I'm taking it from a point of view yeah. of being out of the, the sector a little bit. But very much when I was in it, it was all about um, continual education. It was about collaboration. It was about being comfortable to sit in a room with a, a physio, the coach, a high performance manager. And you all sort of trying to build it around the program or the athlete that you were discussing. Um, and you can some I can remember the very first one I ever did of that. I felt like I was fighting for making my cause and I had to speak. And that's just a, a very sort of immature sort of within that environment in that you don't have to fight for your space. You, you can actually listen and you can learn and you can collaborate. And I think that's where elite sport is, is you're, you're measured by results. So it is high pressure, but you don't have to always have to fight your cause in that. And I think what I've seen here in Australia is um, some very talented coaches um, and there's good people to learn off and stuff. I think the development and being able to understand uh, how to get it all to transfer and to work in a collaborative way, I think it's a little bit behind. Um, and that's just with some of the touch points I've had with some of the national organisations. It's just about the flow of information that can go left and right. And I understand it because I've worked at that level, but the more we can sort of realize that there's nothing in any of our programs that is so unique, that is such a gold dust piece of information that nobody else knows. It's very limited that that's there. If we can make, I've had this thought process for quite a while that our best athletes are working with our best coaches when the athletes need less coaching. <laughs> and our younger athletes that need more coaching are working with our least talented, least experienced coaches. And it always feels like the model's upside down. To get yeah. more of our best coaches to work with and try and speed up the development from a younger age with really good training. There's too many adult theme training happening with our young kids. And, and if you look about the orthopedic injuries that younger athletes are getting these days, go back 20, 30 years, that would have been something that would have been seen in an adult. And I think that's where the... the the explosion with media in terms of being able to see what Rafa Nadal's doing in his training session, I guarantee you those videos are being done with eight and nine-year-olds. We need to see what Nadal was doing at eight-year-old. That's what we need to be copying, not what he's doing as an adult. And that's where I feel we're really beginning to get caught up in the process of early specialization. Yeah. And actually, let's just keep it really broad. Let's get him playing all sports. Yeah, and actually, I mean, that's a good sort of touch point because... I mean, even that movement from being more movement focused to probably less sports specific focused. Yeah. Um, you know, it's something that I've reflected on in terms of just the importance of getting the fundamental movements right is something that we just don't focus on because it's it's sort of it feels like it's not um, relevant to what you need to get up and do within that sort of you know program in that day for that sport and. But then, um, you know, when I reflect back on some of the athletes that I trained with and, you know, as a sort of, as a group, if we'd sort of spent a lot more time just getting the movement basics right, you know, the outcome and the results would have been sort of, you know, far greater, I reckon, in terms of the net effect. But have you, I mean, you, you say you've sort of shifted towards a, you know, a more movement approach. Yeah. Why is, is it because you've sort of played out the, you know, the numbers card and sort of gone, okay, well, you can get so far, but you actually don't get the full. Yeah, the, the, everyone in our, the S&T world gets hung up a little bit when we talk about strong enough. And if everything else is equal, if you've got, if all the skills are ticked off and everything else in your whole, your whole discipline is exactly where it needs to be, just get stronger. Totally agree with that. But I think sometimes we chase after the strength too much that damages other training sessions. So I know with some of the athletes and talking to some of the coaches here in Australia that sometimes an athlete can turn up to a session that's a really important running session, but they're sore from the gym and that sort of then is affecting someone else. So that may be that pursuit of just trying to train too hard in the gym and realising that is it, is it, are we exposing them to being too much in that vein that just basically drags away from another session? What I believe in terms of movement is that we need to move like a human and we play a sport like the sport that we play. And I think 
we're playing the sport so much and we're going very early specialization that got a lot of athletes are moving like the sport they play. So I know in golf, we have like the left shoulders up, right shoulders down because they're hitting so many drivers. And you then see these children when they take their shirts off and their posture is distorted because of the amount of golf shots that they're hitting with their posture. And I think that we've got to move like human beings and then tailor them into sports, especially up until... Because the early parts of uh, a human body growing is growing to what is exposed to. So we have to sort of the specialization comes in is when that growing pathways have already been set. So that chuck variety at that stage, not early specialization. And I think that's what I see. You know, the amount of athletes that still can't juggle, can't stand on one leg, open their eyes and catch a ball. I mean, it's funny. I, I, when I was working back in England, I worked with a couple of swimmers and we always used to have fun in the gym as an early part of their workout would be just to try and teach them how to juggle or to catch a ball or stand on one leg and throw a ball. And tennis balls would be flying around all over the place, couldn't catch a single thing. And you then sometimes ask yourself the question, go, oh my God, they're just not that athletic. And then you stick them in the pool and it's like, okay, that's where their skill set is. But you know, there's still these injuries that come along the way with all of those athletes. And I wonder if we move more like human beings and less like our sport, would we have less injuries? I, I feel that's the way forward. And that's where the movement thing has become a really important. I feel the people that move the best get less injured. And that's an anecdotal point from my, my coaching experience. Yeah. But I mean, like, and that's true of sort of what I've seen is that, you know, the best, the best rowers, you know, in our sort of, um, you know, the time I was in the sport, they were just the most efficient movers. Yeah. And and they were just natural movers. Now, I sort of look at it and go, well, imagine if you took then the 95% of the other athletes and taught them just some more fundamentals around just basic movement. Yep. And um, and then, you know, those athletes too that could move really well, less injuries, you know, sort of more sustained success over, you know, multiple Olympic sort of um, and world championship campaigns. And, yeah. And everyone just looked at them and said, "Yeah, they're just a natural rower." But they were just naturally efficient, and yeah. you know, sometimes that is a natural sort of you know um, skill set of an athlete. But then, more often than not, you can actually still teach this stuff. Yeah, there's the opportunities, and I think it's nice when you work with an athlete and you get a lot of free bits. That's what I talk about a lot when you get a really good athlete that they can do pretty much everything, and then they can tailor that and then specialize. Um, probably as a developing coach. Teaching the fundamentals probably um, across a different, you know, if you look at movement from sprinting to jumping and stuff, we're pretty good at the jumping side of stuff. We're good at getting strong, squat, deadlift, all those movements. But the agility training and the bit of change of direction, applying force, absorbing force, um, teaching sprint mechanics as an S&C coach. We often say, well, that's the sprint coach's job. But to be able to understand it and apply it and understand the forces that go through, um, that's where we, we could all be better. There's, there's so many athletes that come through the journey who don't know how to sprint. They've never been exposed to that. If you can sprint, you can control your body. You've got rhythm. You understand force application. You can produce force. You can slow force down. And I think that's one area of the S&C world. And if it's the S&C world, it's may, I'm going to call it the coaching world because it's not always on the S&C coach to be doing that. But that's the one thing that we haven't been able to really tick off very well. I think that's a real opportunity that is majorly transferable. How do, how do you make the movement stuff relevant to the athletes? Because one of the things I sort of, you know, think back to is, you know, stuff outside of what we thought were core sort of, you know, parts of the program, you'd almost get frustrated by, you know, even considering that that was sort of important because you just couldn't understand the relevance to yep. what you're doing. So how do, you, how do you get over that hurdle where you're trying to get an athlete to do something which – is you know maybe it's a movement based exercise which feels a long way from you know the sport that they're doing, but you know intrinsically that it's really critical for general sort of movement mobility. It's interesting. I'm working with athlete right now where we're we're going through the sprint mechanics. So we're teaching the uh, the launch from the line. We're going through acceleration. We're then looking at the transition into the speed, um, and we're doing it over forty meters. So there'd be a little bit of 10 meters explosion and then going into transfer of speed and then getting the body position in so that then we can go into holding speed. Um, her as a runner, she's very aggressive. So she just tries to run fast all the time. And there's, there's the lack of coordination of the different skill sets. Um, but she's a netball player. And most of her runs might be explosive over five to 10 meters. 
So you look at that, and it's like people could look at it and say, but it looks. N- Someone came along and looked on the side, they would never pick that she's a netball player because the distances and the way that we're training doesn't relate back to her sport. But what we've embraced is that it's the understanding of how to apply the different techniques to get different outcomes with applying force, uh, deceleration and stuff. Once you've got those fundamentals, when you then go back to agility, there's a much greater level of skill set. When we've tried to do the agility stuff without tapping into how to run fast, we find that there's some lacking skills. And I've just found that this is potentially a quicker way to get to the end result, even though it looks it's not the movement patterns that we're actually trying to train for the sport. But is it easy to get the athlete buying with it? Or is it because some of this is sort of like it's, you know, it might take three months or so, six months for them to feel like, oh, okay, I understand why it I'm doing it. It has been three months. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is the thing. It's <laughs> yeah. like, you know, yeah. athletes sometimes feel like if they're not seeing an improvement in two weeks, yeah. you know, this is a waste of time. So how do, how do you get the buy-in? That's the, the collaboration between you and the athlete of what is the process we're going. So if it's all being led by the coach and there's no buy-in from the athlete, they just feel like they might be a guinea pig to your training methods of what have you just read on the internet or what workshop you've just gone to. It's about breaking down what is meaningful to the athlete and then being able to explain that. Um, I explain it much better now as a more experienced coach than what I did when I was younger. So if you can't draw the link in, then, you you know, it comes back to that early golfer is that he asked me the question, why should I work with you? Just just because you've got the job doesn't mean that you're going to be best for me. So sometimes we then in that collaboration bit of talking with the athlete to find out what's important for you to make you a better player. And they're turning around and saying, oh, I I need to be able to get away faster. The sprint mechanics is not too far away from that language. The drills look completely different, but it's picking up on that language. You want to move faster. Well, let's, let's, if I can show you in sprint mechanics and we get you to run from zero to 40 and I time it and it takes you, I don't know, it takes you about eight seconds and I take you on these drills and I can then make that seven seconds. It's still not electric pace. But what it is, is you've shown improvement. And I said, well, okay, well, if we can do that, we can now carry this over. So there are little tricks to the trade in terms of doing, but it all comes down to part of your role as a coach is not just to write programs. It's about education. It's about understanding. It's about showing value to why movement and your philosophy of movement is more important than just hitting out the numbers and the reps and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's um, I can't say that I've always got it right, but I think when you, you put your emphasis into an athlete that you really care, then they know that, well, if you're caring about my performance, then what you're doing is trying to make me better. They're more accepting in that process. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's, it's a trust in the relationship, isn't it? It's like, you know, well, you're the expert in this area, you know, and if you're then explaining through why we're doing it, then, okay, I'm going to back you in and, and sort of stick. You, Yeah, I used to do sessions where I'd book them in for an hour and we'd get, by the end of the hour, they'd have a program written. Now, that first hour might be that we don't get a program written. We might have a little assessment on movement, but have had a conversation about where the direction's going. Um, that's really changed my approach. Um, I have a lot of athletes. I've got um, time precious, but just spending that first hour where you're looking about where you're going long term makes all of the difference. Um, but again, that, I, I have available 30, between 25 and 30 hours a week, and even in exam period, I've, I've had one hour that wasn't booked up this week. So that's either that I'm a good coach, I don't know, we're doing well on that, or the other part of it is it just means that, you know, people really want to get better, really people are prepared to work in this environment, or I've got too many athletes. It's one of those answers is correct. Well, and I mean, the, the coach aspect, you know, one of the interesting things to explore is technology in our, you know, sort of performance environment these days. And, you know, it's probably in the last five to seven years that it started to really have a significant influence yep. but then also probably have a bit of a pushback on it too because um we've seen a lot of stuff that sort of you know people get excited about and then realize that yeah you can produce some numbers and you know read some numbers out of this technology but it's it's actually not that useful to get in a performance so in terms of what you work with what you've played around with you know where you see technology being a really yeah. good aid and where you see the distraction yep yeah i'll, I'll keep you do i do i pull intro. my punches yeah. on this one um i'm not a massive fan of gps i think um 
it, to me, it's if, if you're working with a professional club who's got someone who can analyze the data and be able to get that, I think there's some real value in that. I think it's trying to come into so many levels where we can put a number on a distance that someone's run. It's probably more relevant for, for actual training, but the kits are still, you know, if you're working with a team, they're still in around about the 10 gram mark and stuff that produce a load of numbers that if I did a half an hour search on Google, I could probably pick out some of the same numbers and have an idea about how that could actually direct my practice without spending the 10 grand. I think the things that I've used as I've gone on is I love video analysis and I love uh, just being able to replay back to the athlete of when they do a good rep and a bad rep. I think that works really well. I come back to my original point that I'm a massive fan of consistency of training and getting the athlete to be able to do that, that video can work really, really well. Um, yeah, it's it's a really interesting one because there's so many technologies, there's so many numbers that we can measure, but it always comes back to just because you can measure something doesn't mean it's going to actually add any value to what you're doing. Um, we don't have to put a number. It, funny enough, in the English Institute of Sport, we did do a lot of number crunching and stuff for quite a long while, and I suppose what it can do is that retrospectively you can look back on it and see whether there was some good numbers there but actually in the moment of practice of developing stuff I, I, I don't think it leads practice as much as what people think it does I love the fact of um, you can be around a world-class coach and their coaching eye is the most impressive thing that you'll get out of anything that they actually do and I've been I've, I've watched Pete Cowan coach and I've seen Dan um, doing his stuff and uh, Dan Paff and the thing that amazed me is not the drills that they come up with it's not necessarily the uh, what they actually said it's just what they saw and what I didn't see and that's that real art side of the, the coach and that comes down to I think coaching eye is probably takes a long time to get that's why experienced coaches do a better job than those that are early into the into their careers and that's why being around those coaches and seeing what is it that they actually see that I'm not seeing that's the biggest most important why you get a, a coach to be able to mentor yeah you through your early years and I mean, the thing that I've seen with that space too is that technologies it's going to have a difficult role to replace the, the coach with 60 years experience who can see someone move. I mean, and I, I don't understand how you, I don't think you can. You can't replace that and there's no AI algorithm that they can build that sort of is going to ever sort of, you know, be able to replicate because the nuances are so, you know, so many and so sort of layered in terms of, what you're seeing and how an athlete is moving and then their history. And I mean, the thing that fascinated me with Dan is he can watch an athlete do a 50 metre, you know, run down a track and he'll then have a library of their injury sort of history um, and then set of drills to actually sort of, you know, put them on the right path and actually start to, within the space of, you know, a 20 seconds sort of just run yeah. and um, and you can't, you know, replicate that. And it's, I mean, it's the only way to teach it is through experience and being exposed to people yeah. like that. But um, it's the same within the, in the world of Olympic lifting for a lot of strength coaches go on their courses and they learn how to Olympic lift and then they get signed off that they can now coach it. When you start to develop that movement pattern and become good is when you've just seen loads of different bodies trying to do the same skill. And I'd say in that experience you're doing, there's probably about 50% of correct execution. There's a lot more going wrong in those movements and stuff. So, you know, you can you can teach it to yourself, but and it's, it's actually hard to actually learn those movements. So there's like an overplay sometimes of like particular movements that we're putting into our programs that we sort of hang a hat on. This is the one that unlocks everything. Um, I'm not sure it exists. I think just coaching well, I think, you know, if everyone could squat really well and everyone could deadlift really well and really recruit, the transferable skills of understanding how to force, uh, create force through your feet and stuff. You know, if people want to get fast, you can go and sprint. That's probably the best way to get fast is to do sprinting and don't try and overplay it in the gym with uh, fancy exercises that we feel could create triple extension and there's going to be a massive transfer over. So I think with the, the technology of what we're doing and what we're, you, you see a lot of people out there and say, well, I can measure the different force production through the Olympic lift and stuff. And, and I'm not sure we actually need that as much. We don't have to measure and put a number to it because actually Olympic lifting when done well just looks beautiful because the movement is concurrent and it just flows. That's a coaching eye thing. You don't need to put a number on it necessarily, but that's where I feel there's technology out there that are just saying, well, I can measure that, so it's got to be of worth. And I'm suggesting maybe it's not. Well, and even you know, the very fact that you know, getting an athlete to increase a number 
doesn't actually mean that they're moving better or actually performing at you know, and they'll feel like they're on this improvement curve because they've got a better number. Yeah. But it actually might be in the complete wrong direction in terms of where you want their sort of, you know. Uh, there's so many times where an athlete will come in and I, I wouldn't look at their program. I know that they're maybe lifting, squatting 80 kilos and then all of a sudden I'm seeing 90 on and it's in over a four-week period. That would tell me either the starting point was wrong because like 10 kilos drive over a case of four weeks can be quite challenging when you're already starting at a really good point. And then what you just see is as the load keeps creeping in, the movement pattern gets away from the line that you've really spent a lot of time training. And I think that's, that's where I would go. No, no, that extra load doesn't necessarily, although it's bigger, it doesn't necessarily make you move better. So keep the movement going. And that's why I've always found it hard when working with the overhead squat as a particular exercise because it really stiffens up the hips. So people sort of lose a lot of their movement. And to be able to get it, to be able to get the exercise correct, you have to go quite low loads and stuff. And then the athlete really sees it as a drop backwards. But you have to try and embrace them that it's the movement quality is what we're going for. So there is a whole raft of athletes that just see a bigger number is better and that's the education thing that i think we've got to get to is that moving better is actually the the thing that transfers to a greater extent yeah which is it's it's really difficult because i mean you need a skilled coach and communicator to be able to work with an athlete to understand that because you know as an athlete you know it was athletes love the improvement curve and when you can measure an improvement curve that's one of the sort of you know, endorphins that you get from a session where it's like, yeah, bigger number, bigger number, bigger number. Yeah. Now, the thing I've sort of reflected mm-hmm. after my sort of athletic careers going, yeah, you only need to be so strong in a boat and then you need to be able to use that power. But, yeah. um, you know, too often you just chase the numbers. And, and so getting an athlete to understand the enjoyment of, moving well it's a harder sort of place to be in as a coach to get them and i suppose you have to be a bit more creative about how you work with the athlete you also have to be um very aware as well in the environment i work with we've got athletes that are also students so this time of the year we're we've just gone we're in swap vac at the moment so we've got all the exams kicking up next year athletes don't always arrive at the gym in the same space and they can be carrying stress they can have sleep deprivation and stuff like that that's where those programs where it's done by the numbers and not done by how they're moving on a particular day becomes really, really important. And that's where it's, that's probably the hardest part of my job is to turn around to an athlete and say, today, because we're not moving well, we're just going to lighten the loads till we get to a load to where you can still move well, bearing in mind that you might have had a poor night's sleep or you're not eating well or you've been sat at a desk all day um, studying. So in my environment with the students and the athletes, we have to be very mindful of that. And then also, to move well in a gym, you have to concentrate. And this whole environment where people want to listen to their music and pump the music up and have a chat and make it social, I think that's massively important. But you still, when I, I try to get the athletes what I call the light switch effect, is that you can have the conversation outside of your sets in your rest and recovery. When you go under a bar or you get into your ready-to-do-your exercise, you have to flick the switch and switch your concentration on because that's what will enable you to move well. That skill set is transferable to any sport, whether it be the reacting to the starting gun, getting a better warm-up, just being able to handle playing a bad shot in golf, get it out of your head to then re- be able to reset to make sure that you can play the next shot really well. And um, not to be too simplistic about it, but like, what's the biggest mistakes you sort of see athletes make in terms of their approach and um, how they sort of you know, look at the S&C part of their program? What's... What are they sort of, you know, yeah, what are the mistakes that they sort of, you know, are typically making? Training is more important than recovery. That's where they feel um, if a program is written for a training program for seven days and they miss a day because they were sick or something like that, they would do the same week program in now in five, that was, they do the seven day program in five days because every session is so important they can't miss any. Once a, once a day's gone, it's gone. You can't chase after that workout. Um, so there's a sort of over-reliance on that a training session is so important. If I miss it, then I'm going to get unfit. And it's just, it's just not realistic. It's not how the human body works. So um, if you look at most athletes, and I challenge most of the athletes out there, do you plan your recovery as well as you plan your actual training sessions? And I think 
that's what I've learned along the journey is the recovery planning has to be as integral as actually giving someone an extra stimulus. Yeah, and again, I mean, it, it's a hard space to play in too because, yeah, and rowing's a classic sport where it's a numbers game, it's a volume game. Yeah. We used to – so this used to be a truth of world championships, the week of the world championships and Olympic games, you used to get worked up because you were, you know, actually not training. You were sort of, you know, then yeah. just sitting around ready to race and so you would get frustrated by the fact that you weren't – doing the training loads that you and because your body's just tuned into it but also mentally you're ticking numbers sort of you know through every week going this is what it means to do the program well and to be fit and sort of you know ready to go but um but it's a hard place to then sort of you know talk about recovery as you know the you know a critical piece of what they're doing with their program because yeah, you know, it's it's not the same kind of you know mental stimulus that you're sort of getting from it. And what you're talking about is the very highest end of your sport, yep. and this is dreams that have been built over possibly twelve years, and ask them to do something different to what they normally do. That takes a really good experience coach. That takes education. You've got to rely on experience to be able to make the athlete. But I also think it needs to be talked about well in advance. It needs to be well practiced before that to show the times when it works and when it doesn't work to then it may be that there isn't a single approach that works for the whole crew as well. It might be individually. You might need a bit more stimulus. But I think there's a massive overplay on I perform best when I'm a bit tight or I've, I've, I'm a bit fatigued. It actually helps me to focus. I, I don't agree with that. I don't. I cannot see how fatigue into the body or a little bit of extra training. I think athletes will perform fresh or perform best when they're fresh. And fresh doesn't mean under-stimulated. It means fresh and then just being comfortable with it. And I don't think we practice that enough. I think we do a lot of our training in a lot of environments across a lot of sports where the athletes are just tired and they're just fighting tiredness and having times where you can just refresh them, I think is, uh, is really important. And I think in the S&C world, um, we have to hold our hands up that we possibly don't deload as much as we could just to help those processes. We don't know enough about their training sessions that they might be going into hard sprint sessions or high aerobic sets that we're not decreasing our volume because we, we want to defend our trade as well. We want to be part of the process. But that's where, when you were mentioned earlier on about the idea of people working in silos where you're getting your bit done, so you pass the athlete to the next department and they get their bit done and hopefully you produce the athlete, working in a much more um, an environment where you're all collaborating together, that's what produces the best athletes. And that's where the organisations, and I'm not saying it's easy, it really is quite hard to be to get those, but the institutes and, and clubs have the best opportunity because they house all of their professionals in one space. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And so just, you know, I suppose starting to... Look at the wrap-up. In terms of your philosophy of, you know, where you are now, um, is this a refinement process that you feel like you're in now or do you sort of, you know, you're pretty naturally curious about, you know, what's happening in the world and sort of yeah. where it's all heading. But um, or is it both? Is it a bit of pruning in terms of using your experience to get, you know, sort of sharper and simpler on, on how you're sort of approaching things but also just being aware of, you know, when I, when I look at the horizons of where I'm at, I've been coaching a long time and stuff, um, one of my real dear beliefs is that there are finishing coaches, there are people that are good with development, and there's people that can help people along the way. So there's, there's all sorts of different coaches at different levels. Um, and I found this in golf, that there might be a coach who can coach people with a high handicap really well. They get them down to about 18, and then they pass them on to the next coach who can do that finishing thing. I think within my career is that that's where I'm sort of looking at what is, what is my skill set, where am I best set. Um, I've done an awful lot of sports. I've done a really wide variety of it. And what do I enjoy the most? Because... I'll be honest with you, the elite end is so pressured and stuff like that. It's not always the best environment. And I don't feel the best years of my training have been at the elite level, even though I've trained athlete at the Olympics and stuff. I actually love the bit where you are just before they're launching onto the world stage. Um, I think that's where my skill set's the best. And in doing that, that is that mentoring and collaboration using my experience inside of stuff. Um, that's what I enjoy the most. What I need to develop still is, is how do I just keep getting that experience 
what don't want to pigeon my hole in something because you know I'm fortunate enough to work with a couple of athletes that will be going to the Olympics and that is enjoyable work and stuff like that but it's it's still it's hard if you're not really fully in it because you know that normally gets held by the institutes and I'm not working for the institute over here and stuff like that so Katrina Bissett who I've um, been working with for the last two years um, just recently broke the 800 meter uh, record for Australia went to Doha and she's done the Olympic qualifier um, I'm her support coach so uh, you know uh, um, Peter Fortune is a, a running coach she's got this experience and you know Normally, an athlete at that level will be in the institutes, and we're and I'm fortunate enough enough now still be working with her through the university. But when she stops studying, that will come to an end, I, I would imagine. And I'm not sure where my scope is in terms of being able to work with people outside the university. So, yeah, I think it's if our program goes more elite, there will be more of those athletes coming in. Um, but I think from my point of view, it's just I need to work out exactly where do I fit best and where do I get my most enjoyment. Yeah, and I mean you you touched on. I suppose being more in tune with the communication and sort of mentoring of sort of athletes in terms of understanding, you know, the SNC program and, and how that fits in, and yeah. and then I suppose the movement aspect you you know training towards, but as an industry, you know, forecasting out sort of five years, ten years, where do you think the biggest influences are shifting to? If you had a crystal ball, crystal ball would be. Um Younger athletes doing wider variety of activities, less specialization and a greater emphasis uh, technology maybe to help younger athletes move well. There's enough technology at the other end. I think it's the wider audience. I think injuries are on the increase. I think health, obesity, all of that sort of stuff. We've got to get our younger kids into good programs, moving well, and that just helps the people at the top end as well because you're just getting a better quality of athlete going in. So if I was going to work my crystal ball and say where's the biggest emphasis is, it would probably be not necessarily trying to develop the elite anymore. That's already being taken care of. Is to try and get the wider audience, the younger athlete, the health sector, just beginning to move well. So there's, you know, like the medical bills that are going up with surgeries and stuff like that, and especially with the young kids getting adult-based injuries that would have been 20 years ago, that tells me that movement is the bit that we don't do from a young age yeah yeah that's no, nice one to finish on so um enjoyed the conversation and i mean like you know i think it's cool just to be able to talk to someone who's had the breadth of experience that you've had across you know olympic standard athletes but then athletes who are just starting out with you know their sport and trying to understand you know just the basics and how to get right and then just across sports. I mean, like, you know, I reckon you've got a pretty cool job in terms yeah, of yeah. what you... As much as you might be busy and yeah, flat yeah, out and yeah. have no time to yourself, but sort of at least you're getting to do something that, you know, you enjoy and love sort of doing and, and, and can have a real influence on... I think, I think most people that meet me definitely can pick out my passion and um, I do feel like I don't work very much. I just go to a place where I just have nice... I meet nice people and I have fun, so I suppose as long as I can keep that going and, um, and pay the bills, that's... Uh, it's a nice place to be. Good. Nice approach. Oh, thanks, Tony, for, uh, no, for thank the you. session. Cheers. And that concludes this episode of the Movement Podcast. Thanks to Tony Sefton for sharing his insights and thank you for listening. This episode was brought to you by 776 BC's latest evolution, 776 Cycle. Now available for custom team wear. You can find us online at 776bc.com or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 776bc. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends and family. From the team at 776bc, we look forward to bringing you the next episode of The Movement.